This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The longer you hang out with somebody with a camera, the less aware of the camera they become. And they just start being more and more whoever they are. And I'm very non-directive. I would much prefer the person to just do their life and let me, you know, follow them around. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. And that other voice you heard at the top of the show is the legendary photographer and activist, Joan E. Byron. But before we get to her, June... I feel like it's been forever since the two of us did uh, an episode together. What have you been up to? Oh, my God, I know. So, (laughs) are you ready for this? My latest weird obsession is, it's a kind of an extension of my fascination with YouTube productivity gurus. I have developed a deep and profound interest in a piece of software called Notion. And I have spent an unfathomable amount of time in the last few weeks watching videos of people building dashboards and relational databases and personal operating systems. What is Notion? What is this thing? I don't want to turn this into an ad for Notion. I'm just saying go to YouTube and look up Notion videos because they are bonkers. All right, this is my Notion dashboard, also known as my life hub. It's pretty much the home of literally everything. <laughs> if this is your first It's an all-in-one piece of software, so I think that's why it's so popular on YouTube because like it's useful for students bringing all their notes together. It's useful for like seriously crazy productivity gurus who have like, you know, a million different pillars and and vaults and, and, you know, activity areas and and people who have template banks for making their YouTube video. Like, it's everything. And I suspect that 99% of the world would find it, like, dull as, well, fuck. But I am just into it. Amazing. So let's talk about this week's guest, Joan E. Right. Byron, better known as Jeb. What yes. do we need to know about her? So Joan is a really interesting woman. Um, She was part of the Furies Collective, which was, of course, a lesbian separatist commune based in D.C. in the early 70s, which put out a great magazine. Uh, She was a groundbreaking videographer and filmmaker, but she's best known as a photographer. She's one of the greats of the last 50 years, and she specialized in making photos of lesbians and lesbian feminists and feminists. I find her work particularly interesting because she did both the sort of like art meets documentary type chronicling of lesbian women and the lives they lead. But as someone who is very much of Washington, D.C., she was also a great chronicler of protests and marches and zap actions. And, you know, I lived in D.C. in the 80s. And when I think about being in a group yelling slogans, I can just picture Joan there with her camera whether it was a kissing at the Supreme Court when Bowers v. Hardwick came down or anti-apartheid protests at the South African embassy, she was always there. And it's her photographs that are kind of now the encapsulation of those events. That's how we remember them now. In the interview, you mentioned something called the Off Our Backs Collective. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So Off Our Backs was what the masthead proclaimed to be a radical feminist news journal. Um, I have to say, I, just because I'm kind of worried, we were not TERFs. Uh, 
That is a more modern association with radical feminism. Um, and the magazine operated between 1970 and 2008. Uh, the frequency changed a little bit over time, but when I was on the collective, which was approximately 1985 to 1990, we published monthly. And as you say, it was a collective where we reached decisions about what to publish and everything else by consensus. That was a lot of fun. Um, it was a volunteer project, very low budget, and it was, you know, grassroots feminist politics and debates and and news coverage um, and reviews. Yeah, you know, I do think it's really important for some of our listeners who might be younger or <laughs> might not know that much about it to to have a little bit of context about the state of play with LGBTQ publishing in the 80s and 90s. Like, I remember in 1994, if I wanted to buy a book about gay subject matter in the Washington, D.C. area, I very specifically had to take <laughs> the red line to DuPont yes. <laughs> Circle, go to Lambda Rising, and get it there because that's the only place that it, I was going to get it. And, you know, there, there was the Washington Blade was available a bunch yep. of places, but it's not yep. like... And there was Lana's, the feminist bookstore, but yeah. Yeah. Joan and I get into this a bit. I think for people who've grown up when there was kind of a recognition that homophobia and misogyny are really not acceptable and where there was some and gradually kind of evolving civil rights, it can be really hard to understand how challenging it was to find positive images of real lesbians or gay men, you know, whether it was photographs or words or just about any version, um, and how dangerous it was to present yourself as such. We talk in the interview about Joan's classic book of photography, Eye to Eye. And in that book, there were some photographs of lesbians with their children. And so many women lost custody of their kids or, or they were threatened with losing custody of their kids. And I think it's just, I don't know, I just, I want to recognize it's hard for people today to realize how much courage it took to be in those photos. Um, so much of the discrimination that lesbians and gay men faced back then was, was legal. Um, and it just made everything so challenging. Yeah. And you also do have a little special tidbit for Slate Plus subscribers <laughs> this week. Tell us about it. Sure do. Um, I talked to Joan about how she feels about receiving at least some recognition really rather late in life. She's in her mid-70s now, and it's only in the last few years that her work has been featured in mainstream exhibitions. Um, she now has some photos in the National Portrait Gallery, for example, but they didn't get there without quite a bit of work going into uh, that. Yeah. And, you know, that is, of course, a perfect segue <laughs> to talk about the many, many benefits of Slate Plus, because let me tell you, listeners, not only will you get this little bit of bonus content from this episode, you'll get all sorts of other goodies, including... Say it with me now. Zero ads on any Slate podcast. Bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. And you'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's listen in to June's conversation with the great Jeb. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. So who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Joan Byron. I also go by the name Jeb. I am a supposedly retired, but not really, <laughs> photographer, filmmaker, and activist. So I should say before we start that although our paths haven't crossed all that much in the last couple of decades, we knew each other back in the 80s in Washington, D.C., 
uh, when I was on the Off Our Backs Collective and worked at Llamas, I think. Um, and we were both dykes about town. Uh, but I also remember like filling in an official form every year so that you got a city press pass. So, you know, we, we and we were in the same kind of activist circles back then. Um, but you weren't part of the collective of Off Our Backs. You were kind of an independent creator, right? Yes, I think it's important to point out that through all my years of being a still photographer, I never had any institutional support. I never got grants or fellowships or any of that. And all of my uh, financial support came from within the lesbian community by people coming to see my slideshows and buying my books and so on. Your classic book, Eye to Eye, Portraits of Lesbians, which was first published in 1979, um, but which has been out of print for many years, has just been reissued. So we've got a bit of a history-based episode today. Um, we're not necessarily talking about your creative process today in, in 2021 as to what your creative process was back when you put this book together in 1979. So what was your life like in 1979? Yes, so in 1979, I was a lot younger, and <laughs> I was out as a lesbian, and I was trying to find visual images of lesbians because I needed to see them, you know, and I, I couldn't find images that looked like me or you or our friends or our lovers. I, the images I found were either overly romanticized and, you know, white, young, slim people, or they were the monstery, scary, porno-type images. Mm -hmm. So I decided to try to make those images myself and then when I had what I thought was a good number that represented a good cross-section of our population, I decided to make a book, and I ended up self-publishing for reasons we can get into if you want to. I mean, I know that when the book came out, it was the first book of photographs of lesbians by a lesbian, explicitly acknowledged as such to be published, which, I mean, first of all, that's a lot of firsts, but also I think a lot of kind of younger people who've grown up in recent years almost kind of don't quite believe that that's possible. Oh, they totally don't believe it. People all over the world don't believe it. So creating the first instance of something is magnitudes harder than doing subsequent ones, even if subsequent ones are themselves hard. So do you remember not only deciding you wanted to do a book, but like deciding that you could? Well, I... That it would be possible? I did not know if it would be possible until I asked the women that I wanted to photograph if they would agree to have their faces and names in the book that said where the photograph was made. And that was sort of irreparably coming out for those people. Yeah. And anybody could get a book. And if the women had not agreed, there would have been no book. It was the courage of these women that made the book possible. And uh, there were many women who could not agree to do that. There were women who ran the other way when they saw a camera <laughs> And the reason is that there were great risks mm. to coming out at that time. And I absolutely understood why people would not agree. And, totally. you know, you could lose your children, your home, your family. You could be deported. I mean, so many things that were horrible were legal to mm -hmm. be done to you. And yet... Here were these courageous women who understood that lifting the burden of hiding, of lying, of denying who you were was also worth taking some risks. Mm -hmm. And it was by them showing other people that it was possible is, I think, a 
great deal of the power of this book was as the power of example and that it, it became sort of not only representational in that way, but aspirational mm-hmm. for some people. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I will get back to the book and the making of it in a second, but I'm also aware that, you know, the book, it was somewhat hard to find, even, you know, in the early days. Like, you kind of had to go into a feminist bookstore, probably. Um, but you had postcards, too, right? A lot of the photos in the book were also available as postcards. And I feel like those were even more, I mean, of course, they were more accessible in the sense they were cheaper, they were easier to buy, <laughs> and people would put them up on their walls. Like, that was really putting yourself out there, right? I mean, well, they weren't only going to live in a book. You know, the whole reason I was making the photographs was so that people would have them, and I wanted them to be as accessible as possible. So most of the photographs of mine that I ever saw were on cheap newsprint and mm-hmm. looked awful. Yes. So, when, you know, halftones bleeding into themselves. And... I made the postcards and the book and some calendars so that people could purchase them and take them home and and have them. And there are some wonderful stories about people seeing the postcards up on people's fridges and that being a signal to each other, uh, you know, people finding each other as lesbians because of seeing my images in their homes. And that makes me, you know, thrilled. I bet. Okay, so back to the the book. You've made the decision you're going to do it. You've realized that women are, are willing to have their photos, you know, go out into the world. But then you had to take them because these photos are not all just taken, you know, in your backyard. These women are all over the country. They're all different kinds of women. How did you find them? Well, we have to remember there was no internet. Right. So it was difficult to find them. And what I did was travel all around, and I was sort of passed from friend to friend, and it was all word of mouth. I had a vision of what I wanted in the book. I knew it couldn't be just our friend's you know, in Washington, D.C., because we were too alike. And Mm -hmm. our politics, although we didn't have the word, were intersectional. Mm -hmm. So I would go to a place and I would say, well, I need uh, a rural farming lesbian. Do you know any? Or I need a working class, you know, older woman. Or Mm -hmm. I need... Whatever I was looking for, I would ask, and uh, people would say, well, you could try this person, you could try that person. Well, I don't know, but (laughs) ask this other person. And in that way, it was a very collaborative national uh, endeavor. (laughs) So you were really kind of tapping into the network. And were you writing letters to people? Yes. (laughs) So it would take a while just to hear back, right? I mean, we're so used now to just getting an instant response on email or Slack or something, but you had to wait for it to get there, find people, come back, right? I mean, do you know how long it took to kind of gather the photos? When did you, like, it came out in 79. Do you recall when you started taking the photos that were in there? I started in 1971, but the truth Mm -hmm. is that the bulk of the photos were actually all done in the year prior to the publication. It must have cost quite a bit of money to travel around. Uh, And I know you were doing movement jobs. I mean, how did you pay for the travel to make the photos and meet the women who you were going to be photographing? Because I can tell from these photos that you didn't meet them and take the photos five minutes later and move on. No, there is quite a process involved, as you can imagine. But the way I got around was, you know, in a broken-down old car, uh, (laughs) and I stayed with people. And uh, as you know, most lesbians have cats, and I'm allergic (laughs) to cats, so it was difficult. That was my, you know, I needed OSHA or something. And uh, But the process was, if somebody had been identified to me as a possible person who might be in the book, I would usually 
meet them or talk to them or write to them uh, without a camera being present at all. And I would explain what I was doing. I would be very clear that this was meant for publication. I had designed special release forms that said I can be identified as a lesbian, I can have my name, I can have whatever, and then people could decide whether they wanted their whole name or just their first name. And mostly what the process was that was for me to explain why I thought they, in particular, would be a wonderful person to be in the book, why I wanted them mm. to be in the book. And, you know, it was a way of building understanding and trust before we got to the place when there was a camera present. Would there be, like, a photo session? I mean, that feels it's like something you would do in a studio, but you were in their homes, you were in their fields if they were in a rural situation. Um, was there a general kind of picture of the experience of making the photos that eventually you know, made it into the book or into, into your other photographic output, if you will? It depended on how much time I would have with the person, but I always wanted as much time as possible because the longer you hang out with somebody with a camera, the less aware of the camera they become and they just start being more and more whoever they are. And I'm very non-directive. You know, I would much prefer the person to just do their life and let me, you know, follow them around. So if that was possible, that's the way we did it. If we had a very short time frame, I would say to them, well, how would you like to do this? Mm. Where would you like to be in your home or in your space? And what would you like to be doing? And then, you know, we'd go from there. But I do not believe in posing people because it decreases the authenticity of the photograph to me. I think people understand it and feel the energy of a photograph even if they're not conscious of what they're experiencing looking at it. I think the energy that ha was happening when it was made is in the image. Yeah. And you always, I mean, I'm, I, I'm saying this is just because it's my experience of your work, but did you always work in black and white? No, no. I mostly worked in black and white because all the publications could only print black and white because black and white was cheaper yeah. because I could do all my own developing and enlarging and that there was still a risk if you sent your film to a professional commercial place that they would confiscate it based on the obscenity laws. Mm. So for a long time, I did not use color film. But when I could afford it, I started using two cameras, one with black and white and one with... Uh, slide film, and then I started making slideshows. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So the book was published by Glad Had Books, but that's you, right? <laughs> that's me. There's no other <laughs> Glad Hag. I'm the only one, and I had no staff, no nothing, just me. <laughs> so you'd already done this tough job of going out there into the world, finding women to take photos of, getting out there, taking their photos, getting their permission, then the whole work of making a book. First of all, like, how did you pay for it? I did what we would now call crowdfunding or <laughs> Kickstarter, Indiegogo. Mm. I raised the money within the community. Most of it was loans, small loans by a lot of people, and one or uh, really one major donor who also forgave her loan. Oh. But, you know, it was funded by the community mm -hmm. because I sure didn't have the money. Right, and right. no existing 
lesbian or gay press would do it because I wanted it on good paper. As we said, I had ever, ever only seen it on newsprint, and I was determined that it would be on coded stock, and that was too expensive yeah. for the existing presses because they could put out, you know, like five books of text. Mm-hmm. So the hardest part was not raising the money. The hardest part was finding a printing press that would print these images. And what I had to do was get a very young Nan Hunter, who had just gotten out of law school and was turned out to be one of the, you know, best uh, lesbian lawyers ever. Mm-hmm. She had to go to the press and develop this legal paper that exempted them from liability when, wow. because they thought that all the women would sue them because they were being identified as lesbians, because it was so unheard of, and because the press was somehow legally liable if they did the printing. So we had to get a second round of releases in which we lost some of the people because, you know, and then we had this legal exemption, and then one of the printers refused on religious grounds to work on the project. And then, because I did not have enough money, I had to sort of camp out at the press, which was in Baltimore, to look at the proofs as they came off the press because I didn't have the money, you know, to pause the press to have them send me the proofs. Mm -hmm. So the printing was really a hard piece of getting it made. How many copies did you print of the in the original? The original run was five thousand copies, which is a lot for yeah. a photography book, and it sold out, yeah. I think, in three months. Wow! And wow. then I went back to press and did a second printing, which also sold out pretty rapidly. And it speaks to the hunger that yeah. was in our community to have authentic reflection of who they were. Books just disappeared. And and yeah, many of yeah. them also disappeared without being bought from uh, yeah. bookstores and libraries because people were so afraid they just, you know, steal this book. And I'm glad they did. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Joan E. Byron after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, uh, hey, listeners, a couple things real quick. First, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a second of working. And if you happen to be listening on Overcast, please recommend the episode by hitting the star icon. Also, do you have questions about the creative process? Uh, big or small, whether you're trying to learn how to be more concise with your language, a personal struggle of mine, or you're trying to figure out what to work on next, we would love to help. You can drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us the old fashioned phone call at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-9675. Believe it or not, we actually like phone calls. Okay, let's rejoin June's conversation with Joan E. Byron. So one of the things that struck me as I was, it's funny, I haven't seen the book for years because I didn't have a copy uh, and it's been kind of one of those lost books. Um, I'm so glad to see it reissued. Um, And this will sound weird, but I was struck by how 
a lot of the women are topless. I mean, part of it is I think lesbians used to get topless more back in the day. But also, like, was that an issue? I mean, obviously, when we when we think of photography books, having topless or nudity, like that's not that's not a problem. That's part of the art of photography. Uh, there's a lot of lot going on there, but you know that's that's a reasonable point of view. But there's a documentary feel to this book, and so I don't know the the sort of partial nudity feels um, feels a little different in that kind of documenting lives context, even though being undressed at certain points is indeed part of life. Well, people did think there was a lot of nudity at the time, <laughs> and people asked me, did I? ask these people to take their clothes off. Well, no, this was how we were. As you said in, yeah. in your question, there was a lot yeah. of nudity back then, much more than <laughs> now, I think. And yeah. the only thing I ever did was if someone was nude, I said to them, would you like me to take my clothes off too? Because <laughs> that would, again, equalize the power dynamic. And uh, I have to say, nobody ever said no. <laughs> um, so the book comes out, sells well. But like, what do you do then? Well, my next act was I was going to go on a very short promotional tour. And my friend and colleague and mentor, T. Corinne, said to me, well, if you want to go around, you should have a slideshow. So I put together a slideshow that was called uh, Lesbian Images in Photography, 1850 to whatever the year was, mm -hmm. and became known as The Dyke Show. And <laughs> I ended up traveling with that show, not for a short promotional tour, but from 1979 to like 1985 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful because while I was traveling with that show, I was photographing for my next book, which uh, came out in 1987 and was called Making a Way, Lesbians Out Front, also published by Glad Hag Books. And <laughs> the reason I did not keep eye to eye in print was because I needed the money to make the next book. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was so thrilled when Anthology Editions last year came to me and said, hey, do you want to reissue this book? And I said, I have always, always wanted to reissue this book. There must have been some decisions that you had, though, around the reissue, like how much of the original, what you would change, if you would change anything. Can you talk about how... Uh, this particular issue, the reissue, is different from the original? Well, Anthology Editions is a publisher who really want to stay as true to the original as possible. But here are the changes that we made, all of which have just elevated the book. And I'm just, I couldn't be more happy and pleased about this reissue. First of all, we went back to the original negatives. We rescanned everything. We re-edited, edited meaning we brought out everything that was in that negative that because mm -hmm. the technology is so much better now, you couldn't see before. And then they were printed in gorgeous duotone. So they are really uh, beautifully printed. And it's a hardback book now, and it has mm. this great feel to it, cloth cover, and uh, yeah. inside, all the images are exactly the same. The layout is exactly the same. The design, the font, all of that is exactly the same. What is different inside, besides the images looking so much better, is that we added two essays, one is um, by the wonderful photographer Lola Flash, and the other is by the championship soccer player Lori Lindsay, and, because she's a totally different generation, so she could speak mm -hmm. to that. And we added an essay by T. Corinne 
because even though she's no longer with us, because she was uh, so important to me, I wanted her mm. voice in there. And then I spent a great deal of time revising the notes and resources at the end of the book so that even though you can't click on the URLs, they are there <laughs> and in an updated version. So there's a lot of new text, but it do, it's around the core of the book being exactly what it was. Yeah. Well, as you say, um, you know, we didn't have the word intersectional back then, but uh, it is, there's a, a, a lot of different kinds of women. Uh, it's certainly not all young white women. Um, but you, you mentioned having some regret about one group of people being maybe overrepresented and one group, and certainly some people being underrepresented. Can you talk about that? I'm a lot fatter now than I was then. Me too. And I <laughs> really regret not having more fat women in the book. It was not part of my consciousness to do that. And I think it's a mistake. There's a quote from Alison Bechdel on the sort of plastic shrink wrap about this this book uh, being like a lost family album, which feels really profound. Um, you know, we don't have photos of self-described, um, of out lesbians before yours, certainly not in any easily accessible way. Like, have you been aware of the importance of this book and of your work and of your postcards and of just of this thing that you did? I mean, not that you stopped working in the 80s, but, you know, those early photos do feel like they have some extra resonance, I think. I do. At the time that it came out, I got a lot of letters that I have recently reviewed because they were, you know, in my archives, people saying mm. I was about to give up, you saved me. People yeah. uh, today, because the book has been reissued, are saying what it meant to them then. Lots of yeah. um, wonderful uh, messages on my Facebook page from people who said, I still have my original, you know, it meant so much to me. Yeah. I, I get emotional. <laughs> quite <laughs> and right, the reason quite right. I get emotional is because this is why I did it. And people do tell me, people have told me all through all these years. Um, and uh, it is what keeps you going because, as you said, you're certainly not making money. Um, you know, I, as I say, we, we've not been in constant contact by any means, but because I was in D.C. in the 80s and you were such a part of the community, you were always at events, you were always, you know, always stirring up good trouble. And um, I always thought of you as being, you know, so very central um, to the movement, to various movements, but that's a but. Um, but you weren't necessarily recognized beyond the community. Um, and it feels like in recent years, finally, that has started to happen. This reissue, um, you recently had an exhibition at the Leslie Lohman Museum in New York City. When I go to the National Portrait Gallery, I see your photographs, which is I love portrait galleries, but that that's my favorite thing about about the whole thing. Can you talk about like that feeling of I don't know if you feel like you're being rediscovered or getting attention that you should have gotten earlier late? How do you kind of process this whole thing that's going on? My primary feeling is I'm so glad I lived long enough to see it because when I was making the work, I always knew it was important. And I thought it would be recognized after I was dead. And the fact that I can enjoy the recognition is really something I'm exceedingly grateful for. Um, saying I was not necessarily recognized is a big understatement, June. <laughs> outside I recognize outside you. of the lesbian community, I nobody knew who I was. Nobody cared about my work. And the most surprising thing that's happening now, well, maybe not the most surprising, but one of the things that is surprising to me is that my work is not only being 
recognized and acknowledged as important documentary, which is what I thought would happen, but it is being looked at as art and being appreciated as art. And that is beyond what I had hoped for. Do you have any regrets about choosing the path you did? Um, you know, you had other options. You were very, you're very credentialed. You went to a Seven Sisters college. You had a graduate degree at a time when many fewer people did than do now. Um, you spent three years at Oxford University. Uh, but you chose a political path. And I imagine that young people might be sort of wanting to hear from someone who made a choice like that many years ago and, and uh, how they feel about it Uh few decades later? I would choose it again in a second. (laughs) I have no regrets. My parents had a lot of regrets that I did not become a lawyer. (laughs) Uh, So so my sister became a lawyer. But Mm. I have no regrets. I really loved doing what I did for my whole life. If Had I not loved it as much, I, I don't think I would have made some of the sacrifices that it required Mm. to be, uh, you know, an artist, activist uh, my whole life. Uh, And I just loved the life that I had. I loved the work that I did. Joan E. Byron, thank you so much for chatting today. I'm forever a fan. I'm so glad we got to talk with you about your, the process of making this amazing book on working. Thank you. Thank you, June. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. June, that was such a great conversation. I was so moved by Jeb and her perspective on her work. And one thing you mentioned is how hard it is to be the first at doing something. It's like you're taking a journey and making the map at the same time. That's such a nice way of putting it. I mean, talk about creativity. You have to conceive of the thing in the first place. Convince yourself that it's possible, which kind of might be the hardest part of it. And then take care of a lot of really tricky details to actually bring it to life. I mean, publishing a book like Eye to Eye would be a really tough thing to manifest in 2021. But it's nothing now compared to the degree of difficulty of those pioneering days. It was just really hard.
Yeah, boy, talk about hard, right? The number of hurdles she had to vault over. Um, if she had worked in color, then the lab could have seized her film because it, it, it might be obscene. One of the printers wouldn't make the book on religious grounds. She had to literally camp out at the printers because she had run out of money. It's a truly shocking number of barriers, and it's amazing the book even exists in the first place. I know. It really is a great reminder of how much of turning creative sparks into concrete products often involves just a lot of plain old stubbornness, just not giving up. I also really loved how she talked about the artist subject relationship that, um, as you mentioned at the top of the show, there were a lot of potential consequences for appearing and and outing yourself in her work. Mm -hmm. She spent time with the subject. She got to know them. She actively worried about their level of exposure. She wanted to make sure they were comfortable, you know. It's a far cry from Joan Didion's adage that journalists are always selling someone out or Janet Malcolm talking about how every journalist, if they're honest with themselves, knows that what they do is, you know, uh, morally indefensible. What do you make of that as a journalist yourself? How have you navigated that relationship in your own work? Oh, man. Uh, How many hours do we have? Uh, We have seven minutes. Go go get a cup of tea. Um, It is really tough. I'm always very open with people that I want to talk to about what I'm hoping to do with the information that they share with me. But in a reporting relationship, you really never know where someone's words are going to take you, what you're going to learn about them or the thing they're telling you about. And sometimes you're going to keep coming back to them for more. Like I remember I wrote a big series about gay bars, I think back in 2011, and the owner of Pony, which is a really cool queer dive bar in Seattle, gave me like a ton of his time, a ton of information, took me behind the scenes, was just incredibly generous. And then I had to keep asking for more. How much money are you making? What does X cost? Because, you know, the story needed that kind of detail and we had a relationship. But it's not always easy or comfortable to push people in that way. But of course, uh, I also happen to work, thank goodness, in a place where integrity matters and where we think about why we're asking for things and what that information represents. So um, very fortunate in that regard, but it's really tricky. I was also really grateful to hear her mention body shapes and Mm -hmm. fatness and her regrets about the lack of diversity in that front uh, uh, in her work. Like you can be really proud of what you've accomplished and still see its shortcomings in the rearview mirror, right? The part of creativity, part of that process is as you grow, you know, seeing your lack of growth in your earlier work. Yeah, totally. Being able to criticize your work, your attitudes, your consciousness, um, crit, self-crit in in movement speak, um, it's a key part of getting better, whether that's as a person or as a photographer or writer or or whatever. When I have those moments, I can be very hard on myself, right? And she doesn't seem to be hard on herself about it. She's just like, my understanding about this has, has changed. It's important when you're reviewing the old you that you're still kind to that person in yeah, some ways, I absolutely. think. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. I don't know. You can get really jammed up. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Jeb's gratitude at the wider recognition that she has received late in life is a really stark reminder of how little control we have over our work and its reception when it goes out in the world. We never really know what posterity is going to make of what we do, right? Uh, what's going to stand the test of time or why? And and maybe it's foolish to think about our legacy, but but we do think about it nonetheless, right? I think about how many more books can I get on that shelf yes. of my books before yes. I croak or whatever, right? Yes, <laughs> And, totally. you know, you have been involved in LGBTQ publishing for decades now, mm-hmm. you know? How do you think about the future or, or you know, as you look at the past, what, what still remains and what doesn't? Wow. I don't know. I've thought about my own legacy, um, although recently I've been doing some archival research and a couple of times I found pieces that I wrote like 35 years ago and that is terrifying. Um, But I am constantly thinking about the legacy of the feminist and lesbian feminist activism of the semi-recent past, like especially the 80s and 90s, I guess, since that's when I was most active. Um, So much has been forgotten or I would say unfairly dismissed. Um, You know, I've been reading old magazines from the 70s like The Furies or the very first issues of Sinister Wisdom, a magazine that is still being published today. Uh, And there is some amazing writing in there, like really profound ideas that 
I don't want to say they've been lost, but they certainly could benefit by being resurfaced, let's say. And as hokey as it is, it seems like a good time to quote something um, from Joan Nestle's A Restricted Country, which I've also been rereading. She said, we should not use history to stifle the new or to institutionalize the old. Rather, let it be a source of ideas, visions, tactics that constantly speak to us. Uh, and I guess I want to I want to tap that source, baby. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You know, one one thing that I learn again and again and again, and, and especially when writing the method and doing the research for it is, um, you know, most of the things you think to tweet about or whatever, as if no one's ever thought about them before. Actually, there was yeah. an article in the New York Times about them 30 years yes. ago. You know, like yeah. like every argument we might have about acting or the method today, a newspaper was having again and again and again, every five years. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's not to say that there's nothing new under the sun, but just that the, if you can have some humility about that, you can actually really learn some stuff about uh, uh, the subject and about those debates in a way that 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 can lead you to somewhere really interesting. Yeah, and, and you know, there's this terrible frustration that we want history and progress to move just bam, bam, bam. But actually... You know, it, it goes forward, it comes back, it it wanders off, we kind of forget where we were going. You know, we want we want things to move more quickly, but yeah, and maybe humility is the right way to think of it. It happens not at its own pace, because that takes away our agency and our activism, but it things don't happen on a in a straight line, unfortunately. Well, we hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I'm going to give you one more Slate Plus pitch because Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and more importantly, at least to me, you'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Jeb, Joan E. Byron for being our guest this week and to our producer, the irrepressible, don't even try to repress him, Cameron Drews. Join us next week when Isaac will be talking to Anthony Fortenberry, Chief Nursing Officer at Callan Lord, about the creative challenges of adapting to the COVID outbreak. Until then, get back to work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.